Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med en filosof, som jeg i årtier faktisk har drømt om at tale med. Det er den kanadiske filosof Charles Taylor, der har skrevet bøger som blandt andet Sources of the Self, der er en kæmpe filosofisk udredning af, hvordan det moderne selv blev skabt. Han har skrevet den store Hegel-bog, en bog på tusind sider, som er en total rekonstruktion af Hegels kontekst og Hegels tænkning. Han har skrevet storværket af Secular Age, som handler om, hvilken rolle religion har i moderniteten. Han har skrevet The Malaise of Modernity, som er en bog, der handler om al modernitetskritikken. Og så har han skrevet en bog, som gjorde et uudsletteligt indtryk på mig, da jeg læste den for snart 30 år siden. Den hedder The Ethics of Authenticity. Og jeg kan tydeligt huske, den første gang, jeg greb bogen The Ethics of Authenticity, det var lidt ved et tilfælde, at den dumpede ned på mit skrivebord. Jeg var en ung mand dengang. Og jeg havde egentlig troet, at moral var noget, der var gået tabt i moderniteten. Jeg led i sådan en forestilling, som var ret almindelig dengang, om at de kristne havde en moral. De gammeldags, traditionelle samfund havde en moral. Men det var noget, vi i det moderne samfund havde frigjort os fra. De havde fællesskaber. Vi havde frigørelse og personlig frihed. Så der var sådan en diskurs om, at moral var noget, der var gået tabt. En gang havde man haft en moralsk orden. Nu havde man frihed, og det var jo godt til at udfolde sig. Men sandheden om friheden var også, at det blev til skilsmisser, narcissisme, profitabel selvstrategi. At der faktisk ikke rigtigt var noget fundament for et egentligt fællesskab. Det mærkelige var, at det gik jeg rent faktisk og troede på, at det var sådan, samtidig med at jeg voksede op med en mor, der havde kvindegrupper, som jo om noget handlede om at koble individuel selvudfoldelse med et stærkt fællesskab, samtidig med at jeg var engageret i forskellige politiske bevægelser, optaget af forskellige politiske idéer, der alle sammen handlede om, at hvis du skal realisere dig selv, må du også realisere et kollektiv. Så der var en kæmpe modsætning mellem min intellektuelle tanker om verden og så min almindelige praksis i verden. Det er der jo faktisk temmelig ofte, når man kigger efter. Så læste jeg The Ethics of Authenticity af Charles Taylor, som er meget hurtigt læst. Og der er en meget banal pointe i den, som er, at i moderniteten, der skal vi alle sammen adlyde vores eget selv. Selvet er en forpligtelse. Det er en stemme, man ikke kan svigte. Jeg skal mærke efter, hvordan jeg selv har det. Jeg skal lytte efter, hvad jeg har lyst til. Og jeg skal ikke lade mig fremmedgøre af andres krav. Og det er jo den tænkning om, at selvet er et projekt, du er forpligtet på. Det er en moralsk kerne og en stemme, du skal lytte til. Det er dit sande jeg. Det er den højeste autoritet i dit liv. Det er jo den tænkning, hvis man tager den for sig, så kan man sagtens sige, at det bliver til nyliberalisme, det bliver til egoisme, det bliver til narcissisme, det river alle fællesskaber fra hinanden. Men Charles Taylors meget enkle pointe, den var, at ikke alene er jeg forpligtet på mit selv, men jeg er også forpligtet på andres selv. Den anden selv er lige så heldigt som mit eget selv, så jeg må ikke stå i vejen for den andens selvudfoldelse. Så derfor er det en etik. Det med, at vi hver især har et autentisk selv, det er en etik, og forpligtelsen på mig er kun gyldig, hvis jeg også er forpligtet på andre. Og det næste skridt er selvfølgelig, at det er også en politik. Fordi det betyder jo også, at vi må indrette et samfund, hvor vi lever op til, at det rent faktisk er uacceptabelt, hvis der er nogen, der ikke kan realisere sig selv. De bedste eksempler er arbejderbevægelsen, kvindebevægelsen, borgerrettighedsbevægelsen, som alle sammen tager udgangspunkt i, der er noget i arbejderens situation, der forhindrer hende i at realisere sig selv. Der er noget i kvindens position, der forhindrer hende i at realisere sig selv. Der er noget i den diskriminerede minoritets situation, der forhindrer dem i at realisere sig selv. 
Så det var en kæmpe opdagelse af noget, som i virkeligheden var rimelig banalt for mig, dengang jeg læste Charles Taylor's The Ethics of Authenticity. Senere læste jeg Malaise of Modernity, som også var en tankevækkende åbenbaring for mig, faktisk. Fordi den handler om, at moderniteten ikke bare er et opgør med det traditionelle samfund, men er etableringen af en moralsk og politisk orden i sig selv. Og det er en orden, som ikke alene konstituerer nogle principper, som danner rammer om de mest solidariske fællesskaber i verdenshistorien, men det er en orden, som også legitimerer en konstant kritik af, når vores fællesskaber ikke lever op til de principper. Og det, der var sket for mig som en ung mand, der gerne ville sige noget drastisk og radikalt i verden, men ikke rigtig havde tænkt mig om, det var, at jeg ligesom forvekslede kritikken med realiteten, at fordi man kunne kritisere, at arbejdere ikke havde samme plads, fordi man kunne kritisere, at kvinder ikke havde samme plads, fordi man kunne kritisere, at diskriminerede minoriteter blev holdt ude, så var det også sådan, det var. Der var ikke andet end det. Men realiteten er jo også principper. Det er de normer, vi bekender os til. Det er de idealer, vi henviser til. Så på den måde blev læsningen af Charles Taylor absolut formativ for mig. I første omgang intellektuelt, men siden må jeg også erkende eksistentielt. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Scandinavia and especially hello to you Charles Taylor who is with us from I believe Montreal, Canada. Isn't that correct? Montreal, that's right. Yes, I'm very glad to be in contact. Yes, you've been for me personally, you've been very very important intellectually and almost existentially. Jeg har bare de senere år tænkt, når jeg har set på, hvor gammel Charles Taylor er, at det måske var svært at komme til at tale med ham, fordi Charles Taylor, han er født i 1931, så han er nu 91 år gammel. Så jeg havde egentlig ikke troet, at jeg ville få mulighed for at tale med ham, selvom jeg de sidste mange år har været i en konstant dialog med ham. Fordi jeg har tænkt, at han har et meget positivt syn på modernitet, men hvad gør klimaforandringerne ved det billede af moderniteten? Bliver vi ikke nødt til at revidere hele moderniteten, når dens produkt er klimaforandringerne? Når synet på, at mennesket er centrum, og naturen er vores fundament, det ender med, at naturen bliver undermineret som vores centrum. Kommer moderniteten ikke til at underminere sig selv? Og det positive syn, han havde på moderniteten, da han var ung, kan stadigvæk opretholde det i 2022. Alle de spørgsmål har jeg længe gået og tumlet med og haft lyst til at spørge ham om. Så skrev vi en mail til ham og sørger mig om ikke den 91-årige kanadiske filosof med det samme svaret, at det ville han gerne. Så det er en samtale, jeg har forberedt mig på meget længe, den der følger nu. Jeg håber, I har lige så stor fornøjelse at lytte til den, som jeg havde af føre den. It seems to me that politics and philosophy were always part of your life. That's how it seems to me, at least, and that they were always connected to it to an extent. At least they have been for about seven decades. How did you originally become involved with politics and philosophy? Well, politics is easy. It was my family was, you know, there was my grandfather was a Canadian senator. There were all sorts of people in politics around me. So it was a normal thing to do. And Already as an undergraduate, I joined a party, and not the same as I would support now, but but <laughs> but philosophy came in a surprising way. I did a first degree in history at McGill, and then I got a scholarship and went to Oxford and studied politics and economics. But at a certain moment, I got very riled up with the philosophy they were teaching there, which is very much analytic philosophy, very dry, very reductive, very mechanistic. 
totally unrelated to what I thought life was about. So I'm really determined to do something to upset that whole outlook. And I began to look into Merleau-Ponty and other phenomenological thinkers. And I got bitten by philosophy, but bitten in my, let's say, mid-20s, you know, uh, not from the very beginning. And then the two run together. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people who are interested in philosophy, and especially in your way of studying modernity, and, and your way is kind of a philosophical anthropology, a study of what humanity is and what humanity is worthy of. You know, you politics and philosophy are connected and will be connected for a lot of people. Yeah. But I very often find that when, when we study politics through philosophical concepts, say, for instance, like democracy or, or capitalism, that we, we tend to appear very clever talking about politics through philosophy, but very often we underestimate the complexities of, of real life. And very yeah. often philosophical concepts about politics can be reductive. So it's a dangerous connection. I, I think you tend to appear more clever than you really are on the social world. How do you see this, this uh, connection yeah. between politics and philosophy? Well, because I've never looked at philosophy as a self-enclosed discipline. I've always thought you can only tackle really interesting questions philosophically if you're also looking at them, depending on the question, historically, sociologically, in terms of uh, patterns of social imaginary. This is what the problems that interest me, the problems of politics and society, require more than philosophy. So I think that if you don't think in an interdisciplinary way, philosophy becomes an obstacle because as you say, we think you have all the crucial factors to think about. But if you do think in an interdisciplinary way, philosophy is a crucial part. It keeps you critical of the concepts of historians and sociologists, while at the same time, you, you use those concepts or altered forms of those concepts to understand your society. There isn't a single, single discipline that really gives you the key to society and history. So something that I was very struck by in your work when I first read actually your Hegel book, I read as a very young man, and that kind of started my obsession with, with Hegel. So still today, I'm reading Charles Taylor's Hegel. <laughs> something that, that struck me there was the way that you, you thought about modernity, uh, that, that it was very important to keep it open, to, yeah. to, to see the dangers and, and the benefits at the same time. And that seemed to me at the time, a really original way of approaching it because I grew up in the seventies, a lot of cultural critics, uh, all the way from Adorno to Christopher Lash to Alan Bloom, uh, just watching the decline. And then there were the optimists on the other side, but you had this view of the complexity of modernity. And it seemed to me there was the ambition of showing us that complexity. How did this interest in modernity start for you? Well, it really was the Hegel book. Uh, it was a kind of accident, <laughs> of accident that there was somebody doing a series in England of all the philosophers for Penguin, right? editing a series. But no one wanted to touch Hegel because Hegel was such a poisonous figure for those analytic philosophers, right? So, so he turned in, in desperation to me. <laughs> so I started to work on Hegel. And when I started to work on Hegel, I saw right away that the really interesting thing was his period, the Romantic period, the uh, outbreak of a totally new conception of, of, of poetry and art, but also human history. I read Herder with great interest and so on. And 
I began to see the romantic origins of our modern culture. I mean, for instance, the idea of origin, uh, ideal of originality that, that, you know, you have to, everybody has their own way of being and they have to discover it and work it out and so on. That, what I've called later the ethic of authenticity. So I began to see our modern society through this prism of succession of the Romantic period. I dropped Hegel. <laughs> Hegel was very interesting, you know, but he seems to be my guide here. It was really the situation in which he wrote and the ambitions and the desires to overcome age-old alienations and so on, which I, I saw there. And it, that's been connected to my guide for understanding society. I couldn't see it, therefore, as simply a matter of negativity or simply a matter of positivity. I mean, the people that said everything's wonderful and before it was awful, I find equally unbelievable as people who think it's all going to the devil, you know, it's going, losing everything. It was all, we had order before, now we have chaos. Yeah, there's a wonderful line in the beginning of Sources of the Self, which you, where, where you say that we have yet to capture the unique combination of greatness and dangers of modernity, which seems to me emblematic of, of your thinking of modernity. What were the misconceptions of modernity that, that you were discussing with at the time? Yeah, but I think that the, the, uh, the ethic of authenticity, which I think is very, very central to modernity, yeah. was just, could be just misread as egoism or as a refusal to you know, be in any stream that you get from outside. So I wrote a book, uh, I've forgotten what it's called because it called, was called different things, but the ethic, I guess the ethic of authenticity is the most known title. Um, and another title in, in Canada. And it was an attempt to show that when people work out their own identity, they're always working it out in some kind of exchange. Sometimes it's a hostile exchange, but often it's also to some degree a friendly exchange that they're talking to people and that people are coming to see what they're what's different about them. And of course, it's tragic for young people if uh, if all the people who surround them, particularly their parents, refuse to see what's hmm. going on. But so the idea that it's simply egoism sounded to me completely wrong. We're always working out our our identities. Uh, dialogically, and I think the dialogical is a very crucial concept for human beings. So then you move on from there and ask, well, what is, what is going on in all these contemporary rebellions? And I think what's going on is a continuation of a very, very old development that we see in earlier modernity, where the concepts of human rights, the concept of the human person is some, in some way sacred or untouchable become really central. People challenge slavery on the 18th century. And I think the continuation of that in our time is that people become concerned with inequalities and exclusions. Uh, the idea that men are more fitted to do certain things than women or that whites are somehow superior to blacks or that so on, all these things. And I think that what we're seeing in our time, let's say from the 60s on, is massive set of uprisings against these and attempts to overcome them. And of course, some of the attempts are foolish, or excessive, or 
you know, beside the point or just ending up in insults, but a great many of them are genuinely trying to establish uh, greater equality and greater recognition and conciliation for different kinds of people. And we're now dealing in our contemporary democracies with an immense backlash against that. The backlash is understandable, but unfortunate. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's in a case like the United States with Trump, he's entirely a spokesman of the backlash, entirely spokesman for people who feel upset by the equality of women or the equality of, of African-Americans and so on. And it could ruin our, this kind of thing could ruin our democracies. But another feature of me, which is probably totally uh, without justification is I, I think you mentioned it, I tend to think one, I tend to be optimistic, but I also think, as you say, like Kant, you have an obligation to be optimistic <laughs> because you don't fight as strongly if you think, oh, it'll never work, it'll never work. But, but nevertheless, I'll go out to vote. You know, that's not gonna, <laughs> That doesn't ensure victory. And no. Nothing ensures victory, but that ensures defeat. Because when I, I read your book, uh, Sources of the Self, originally, and the Hegel book uh, as well, I thought at the time that the theories of modernity were too pessimistic and that it was a very easy way of criticizing modernity. Look at instrumental reason, look at alienation, look, yeah. at, look at new openings as, as chaos, and look look at at the worthy the worthiness of each single life as just selfishness and narcissism that they were you know everything everything can decline but it that's that wasn't the essence in itself and what your work was very much about was showing the conflict between romanticism we must listen to our hearts sometimes yeah. rationalism we, we we must listen to our minds at times and when i read your work originally which is 25 years ago i i thought well pessimism is wrong these conflicts are actually driving us forward. When I look at some of the same conflicts today, I, I have more doubt about them. I was just in America to cover the midterm elections. And to a certain extent, I spend a lot of time with Republicans. They are speaking their mind. They are listening to their hearts. And it seems that this conflict that could lead to collaboration between romanticism and rationalism, that it, that it plays out differently today. How do you see, and I know this is a big question, but I can think of no one better to answer than, than you. How do you see these fundamental conflicts of modernity today? Well, I think it, the big one now is the attempt to realize the promise of modern, how to say humanism, modern rights and equality against the under, very understandable backlash. You know, I have a certain sympathy for people who for instance, I mean, if you're a man and you've always had this view that uh, the role of the man is to be the head of the family, the breadwinner, and you have all this sense of success and self-approbation because you're doing that well, and then you're told, well, that's not necessarily the way things ought to be, right? I think people get easily hurt, undermined, and I can understand that. And then along come the ideologues, along come the demagogues, <clears throat> and get them worked up on the idea that the, you know, the whole of our civilization is collapsing and we've got to stop it, etc. So I think we always are going to face great struggles. But I do see a reason to be optimistic. 
Now, let me give you my reason. My reason is that for all this fear of diversity and difference and so on, when you look to the younger generation, there are people exactly the opposite for whom diversity in their lives has been an enrichment. And this is very much more common among younger people than it is among the older people. So I look at something like the murder of George Floyd, and I look at the obvious uh, response of that, which was Black Lives Matter movements and so on. But I look at what's new. What's new there is that unlike earlier Black Lives Matter movements, there was very multiracial. There were lots of white, young white people in there. Because for them, this kind of difference in the, the music they listen to and so on is something that is enriching, not threatening. So there is, is a possibility of a kind of, in a way, a mutation in our sense of what life is about, where we come to a sense that diversity exchange makes us deeper, richer, stronger sense of what life is all about and what's good about it. And then the fear that is driving the present backlash will, to some extent, mitigate. I mean, it disappears too much to hope, but this fear will be less. So I'm counting very much on the younger generation here. But I think there's a reality of a change there. Yeah, it's very interesting. When I was in Georgia just last week, I, I went to Martin Luther King's birthplace and I spoke to some very old black people who were yeah. picking cotton in the Georgia fields in the 50s. Yeah. And I, I was asking them whether they, they saw their life as a chain of progress or as first progress and then backlash. And then they said, well, definitely for the first couple of decades, progress. And, and then the last couple of decades, a backlash. But they kept saying, well, our belief is, is in the young people because they don't tolerate all the things that we tolerated at, mm. at, at the time. So this experience that you have young people teaching their parents and their, their grandparents about right and wrong is definitely a progress. Yeah. But my anxiety here is that, whereas in the 60s, you could say that you had somewhat stable con conceptions of what was real. You had a, sta a more stable public sphere you had an established common ground. Today, it seems to me that the, the grassroots movements are stronger, they're more diverse, they have a global outreach, but the institutions that they're appealing to and the common ground seems to be disappearing. How do you see this change in dialectics? Well, I think that it's a, it's a little bit inevitable if you get to these very, very deep gut issues and you want to really have them out. I think that would be naive to hope that it would, you know, slight change in the budgetary policy, which doesn't make very many ways, could be a good uh, harbinger for this kind of radical change. So I, I'm not surprised, but I'm worried, I'm scared, because it could go wrong. And I think we're going to have some societies in which it will go terribly wrong. I feel that France today, for instance, in which I take a great interest because you know it's the same language we speak here, and they influence us, I think, badly. I think they're headed for a terrible situation because they're deeply divided and there's 
doesn't seem to be a very large group of people with the sense of see, to see that that they're destroying themselves. And I'm, of course, terrified of the United States because they have such immense power. And living on the same continent with them is kind of very scary, uh, particularly with the guns. You know, the, we have, we're swamped with guns because we can't control a 9,000-kilometer frontier because they have more, I don't know how many times, more guns than people in the United States. So the, the craziness of their society is, uh, and the, I mean, instant Mexicans agree with us. <laughs> uh, so there's, I'm very, very scared. But I've seen enough evidence of what the younger generation is like to see hear hope for the future. And I'm, you know, in a way, I'm putting all my money on that. I'm putting all my hopes on that. And on the, I mean, there's an even a great spiritual leap forward of someone like Martin Luther King. Or John Lewis, this wonderful, he was, you know, an important figure till he died recently. His message to his opponents was this wonderful line, put down the burden of hatred. So you see, hatred is not enlivening. It's a burden. You have to lie to yourself, pretend that you're <laughs> entirely in the right. You have to blind yourself to what is good in the other. You have to deprive yourself of the kinds of things you can accomplish together if you get together, right? So. Hatred distorts, hatred crushes you, right? And there's such wisdom in that, such deep wisdom. So if only people could listen to that. And then I see the young people who do see precisely that. This kind of uh, backlash is actually impoverishing them, is narrowing them, is depriving them of something that could really uh, give meaning to their lives. I, I read the other day a great quote from, from the funeral of John Lewis, where Raphael Warnock said that he loved America so long that America learned to love him back. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a beautiful quote. But what to me is the big difference from, from the modernity that I grew up with is and today is the following, that if we look at what we consider to be the malaise of modernity or the conflicts in modernity, they were always about the relations between humans, yeah, one human and another human, one human and society, and all the core concept, democracy, capitalism, they presuppose that we control nature, that we can predict nature, and that we can control nature. This is kind of the, the presupposition of, of, of modernity, that we already conquered nature. And it seems to me that now we're in a whole different territory where no. not only do we know that we don't control nature, but if we're honest to ourselves, we also know that for the last four decades, our political systems have shown that they do not have the capacity to respond adequately to climate no. change. And, and, and how much does the fact that we're now confronted with nature and our primary obligations towards other humans is responding to that and we don't seem to be adequately equipped to that. How much does that change your view on modernity? Well, it, 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 I don't know how to say this, but it terrifies me even more than the breakup of society by our inner conflicts. I agree with you. We, we, somebody calculated that even if all the people, all the countries had made promises at Glasgow in the last big meeting, 
carried them out, we would still not be far enough ahead. And every one of them is, is falling back on their promises. So it's really very, very, very uh, scary. I don't, you know, it's not the existence of the human race. There'll always be human beings, but there could be immense loss of life, just immense loss of life coming up. And that means it's part of the present pattern that the people that are most threatening on the issue of, of uh, overcoming disunity, for instance, the United States, the Republicans, are also the most blind, willfully blind, on this issue of global warming. So, uh, again, young people, when you see them, your spirits can rise a little bit. You know, it's, Greta Thunberg was absolutely extraordinary phenomenon. Uh, you know, that somehow, she managed, uh, in spite of, I think, a lot of the internal stress in her own, her own uh, psyche, she managed to become this great leader among young people. And so it's going to be a very close-run thing, but we just might get on top of it enough to limit the damage in a, in a serious way. But you, you got something deeper in what you're saying. We need to have a totally different view of human beings in the, in the cosmos. And, you know, there I go back again to my great source, the Romantic period. It was the Romantics that began to understand that we have to have another relation to nature, to the cosmos, surroundings. And a lot of their poetry deals with that, you know, Herlin, Wordsworth, and so on. And I'm trying to write a book on that at the moment, actually, because I think this is something that we have to, another strand of romantic thinking that we have to recover. We live in a larger order, which makes demands on us, but which also is very beautiful and is very inspiring, which can help us meet the demands. But you have to get beyond the totally instrumental stance to a stripped-down university, which is just made up of stuff that you can move around and that that's another that's another frontier <laughs> human development yes because in, in you stress in your work that what we considered falsely a loss of of morality was that we thought that because we didn't have any vertical relation to god or or the heavens or the cosmos that constituted our morality but we had a kind of horizontal morality that we were abide our obligations were toward each other that that was a very strong moral order. Uh, of course, now, when you look back at the last 70 or 80 years, you'll say, well, at the moment we, when we established this very strong moral order, and I always tell my kids that, yes, it's not good with nature, but I promise you, we treat each other a lot better and with a lot greater sensitivity, with a lot less tolerance for, for violence and racism than 100 years ago. You live on the shoulders of enormous human progress. They would say, well, was the destruction of nature the price of that? And would you, looking back now, would you say, well, this liberation from obligations to anything but humans, is that what we're seeing now? Well, that's one of the things that we're seeing, yes. And it's one of the things that takes a form, which is even worse, which is in a, a liberation from obligations even to other people. I mean, take uh, the Republican Party in the United States as an example of that in their whole outlook denial of the need for meeting global warming goes along with denial of the need for solidarity with other human beings. So there's again a great spiritual leap that we have to make, but uh, I think we have it in ourselves to, to make that because 
all along there has been this voice of calling us to recognize our relation to this bigger nature. And the, the voice is now becoming louder because partly because of the condemnation of the simple stance of, of instrumental reason, but partly because uh, we're, uh, many of us are deeply moved and worried by the death of species, by the uh, destruction of whole forests and so on. So the, again, there's a battle going on which no one can predict the outcome of. It looks very scary, but we're in with a chance. And that's why I'm talking about being optimist. I think we have an obligation to rally our team, <laughs> right? And not say, oh, we'll never make it, they'll never make it, you know. Now go to vote. I mean, that's, that's not the way <laughs> to win. The point is to say, if we all go to vote and go to vote in the right direction, we can actually do something crucial to push us forward. Another question uh, to the core of your work, I think, is that the modernity that you described when you were a young philosopher was very much a Western modernity at the time Modernity was the Western modernity, and that is also the foundation of Hegel, is that the world spirit speaks German, yeah. and that everything that's valuable must <laughs> culminate in, in, in Germany and, 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 and speak German. And this, and all the theories and philosophy that I grew up with and were shaped by, modernity was Western modernity. So if we studied Western societies, we knew about modernity. And it was presupposed that, and then we also knew about what the other societies would become because we were kind of the avant-garde of, of history. In, in, in your work, especially in modern social imagery, you say in the end that we must adapt to multiple modernities. We must understand that the European modernity is not the only modernity. How much does that change modernity in your view from the one that you described earlier that today we have a Chinese modernity radically different from ours, an Indian modernity radically different from ours. How much does it change that? But it, it changes it in a certain sense totally. I mean, the vision of a long caravan going towards the future and we're at the end of it is obviously a ridiculous uh, wrong vision. And once again, we have to change that in order to live in the world with, with others. But together, we have this tremendous challenge of our relation to nature. And it must be said that the other modernities aren't necessarily more awake to this challenge. I would say that the, in a certain sense, the Chinese is perhaps behind us in this respect. <laughs> they seem to think that everything can be controlled, including human souls. I mean, getting the Uyghurs to stop being Muslim or something. But this is a relatively recent, it's the, it's the rise of Xi Jinping uh, in a China that looked as though under, under Chopin it was heading in a slightly different direction. But that is the voluntarism, the voluntarism that you see in the Bolsheviks run wild in China. So the existence of these different modernities doesn't necessarily guarantee us uh, that we have a better stance towards our, our cosmos. But we have to recognize that, that the whole the sources they draw on, what they become, the the sor internal sources that are very important for them are going to be very different from ours, and we have to learn from them. And that's another way, actually, in which we experience that uh, multiplicity and diversity can be tremendous source of enrichment. I, mean, I, 
I've learned so much from the discussion with Indian colleagues and understanding democracy in their context and so on. It's been a tremendous experience for me. And I think everybody who has had that kind of experience agrees with me. And I think we, we automatically almost connect modernity with a certain morality. And that morality is, is all institutionalized in the human rights. And yeah. now, we, we, now we are in this conflict that on the one hand, we know we must engage with China. We can no longer just look at China as a developing country going our way. We must respect them for what they've achieved with their society. We must find some kind of equal footing with, with, uh, with China. And that's very difficult for us in the West. It's very, very difficult to recognize that we are no longer the superpower of the world. But on the other hand, we have these moral ideals that are extremely valuable to, to us and that you've written a, a lot about. So with China, we always have this dilemma, how much should we confront them with the human rights abuses and how much should we learn to respect them? Yeah, we, we are not, uh, we're really respecting them when we respect their desire for freedom as being as real as ours. I think the worst kind of stance is to say, well, in China, they do things differently, so they don't care if everybody is told to do or think what to think by the top. They do, they do care, only they don't dare speak up. So I think it is a real act of solidarity with them to be highly critical of the present policy of the present <laughs> central committee of the Chinese Communist Party. But then there's all the issues of how you deal with this in diplomatic and military terms, uh, the kind of thing we're in now, trying to stop uh, Putin from destroying Ukraine, but at the same time, recognizing that there's this tremendous danger of a nuclear slipping into a nuclear conflict and so on. So there's a very, very difficult problem of managing that. The necessary conflict of ideas, the necessary conflict of moral judgments, the necessary condemnations, but at the same time, we have to live together in the same world because there is a real danger of utter self-destruction if we don't play our cards right. So if we say, well, well, actually we have this common ground, which is the threat from nature. And I'm not saying it's beneficial, but I'm saying something good can come out of that. Yeah. That, that, would, that And, and, and it, I think it's to, in a, to a certain extent healthy for us in the West to realize that we're no longer the masters of our own destiny. I mean, yeah. we can, whatever we choose to do, if China do not do the same things, if they don't cut their emissions, then we're in trouble, in deep, yeah. deep trouble. And if India, India doesn't, so all the countries must do it at the same time. That, that, yeah. that must happen. We must work together on that. But when it becomes concrete, then you say you can buy solar panels from China. They're the world leaders on solar panels. But solar panels, they're made in these almost concentration camp-like uh, work relations uh, with, yeah. with, with, the, with, with the Muslims. And this is a big debate in Denmark, whether we should say, well, climate change suspends human rights. We can do our best here in Denmark to build a society that's admirable, but we cannot teach them how to live. And others would say, well, we cannot let China dictate. And we, we cannot let climate change dictate that whatever goes, that we, that we allow them to have these concentration camps. That's just a betrayal of history. I know this is a difficult question as well, but I'm curious how you see it. 
when I see a dilemma, there are going to be dilemmas the whole way along. I mean, for instance, at a certain phase, when the only source of these panels was China, and we had to move as fast as possible, you can understand the argument, okay, it's terrible what's going on in those, in those uh, factories or in, in that production process, but we desperately need this if the pennant is to, to, to survive. Now, this is a temporary acceptance of an intolerable situation. And dilemmas always impose, or often impose, this kind of temporary acceptance of, a, of an impossible, morally impossible situation. What isn't uh, right is allowing yourself to slip into permanent acceptance of that. They must always be re-examining re these dilemmas to see if there's not another way, way out. But our way forward for the next 50 years or so is going to be strewn with these dilemmas, which are, you know, we have to take one by one and do the best we can in each one of them. I have just two more questions for you. Uh, the one, one is that we have a Hegel community here around our, our, our newspaper, and we celebrated his birthday last year, 250 years birthday. And, and uh, I, I'm curious, as, some, as someone who wrote a very, very, very important book about Hegel, the big one, but, but, but also the small, the small political book about Hegel is, having lived with Hegel for half a century, how did your view evolve on Hegel over the years? And do you still believe that it makes sense to speak of the world spirit? No, I mean, I don't think I ever thought that Hegel uh, made sense ultimately, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really, my real allegiance is to the romantic movement that he tried to as it were, sum up and then rationalize. The rationalization didn't work. And there I'm very close to the most perhaps the most famous Danish thinker in world history, I'm talking about Søren Kierkegaard, right? Who I had views on Hegel that I was <laughs> closer to than I am to the standard Hegelians. But it's still very fascinating attempt. Uh, and it, it's plugged into very important ambitions to overcome deep oppositions in history. Huh? Now, so his claim to overcome these oppositions to, to explain how to do so doesn't work. But you know, <laughs> philosophers can be very interesting and very instructive, even if their ultimate conclusions are not believable. So in a certain sense, I still value Hegel. I still think people should study him <laughs> for that reason. But I just, you know, to buy the, the, the entire system, I think is just impossible in our day. And, and my, my last question uh, is that earlier this year, I spoke to Another, he's an, a historian of ideas, uh, Quentin Skinner, whom I admire enormously. And I, I spoke to him and how he saw the, the situation today compared to when he was growing up, because he was growing up during the Second World War and remember the bombings of, of, yeah. of, of London. And he said, well, th those were bad times, but after them, there came three decades of progress. And he said, these three decades of progress he thought they would be new, the new normality, that, that the period of growth and that you could have equality and wealth at the same time. He said he thought that was the new normality. And he said the climate change today is a threat that he was not politically and mentally prepared for. And he said for him, that was a lot worse than the time when, when, when he, grew, he grew up. How do you compare these two situations, the world war and what we're in now, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, we were all totally blind at that point. I, you know, I mean, we didn't necessarily agree with the very instrumental stance towards nature. We were always trying to defend the big, you know, the huge forests of British Columbia against the loggers. And so uh, we had a kind of sympathy for the for the loggers and the people who lived alongside them and the Aboriginals. But we had no idea of the utter disaster that we were all facing, none. So it really is only in the 70s and 80s that few lone voices burst and then more and more people began to tell us there was something utterly, utterly disastrous. So this is, a, this is what history consists of, something that at one point is just a small cloud on the horizon, it turns out to be a, a raging storm in your life. One absolute last question. Then my when I discuss my kids, they say, Well, I don't I don't understand that humans can be so cruel because you knew there were Rachel Carson already in 62 and you had the EPA. Oh, and, yeah. and then the, so this is one version that enormous progress was built on destruction of nature. So yeah. so so we were selfish as a as a race. And then there's another version saying, Well, actually, human the byproducts of human behavior always surprise us. And this is just the biggest challenge ever. So it's not that human base is basically flawed or evil. It's just that we have to, to make bigger efforts than ever before because we are faced with a problem that's bigger than ever before. Which of these two do you buy into? Well, I buy into the second in a way. You see, if you're back in the Neolithic period or the Paleolithic period, uh, the idea that your small level activity is going to change the nature around you sounds absurd. No, sure, we just clear a small clearing and grow a few vegetables here. So it took a long time. What the sneaker that we didn't see was fossil fuels, right? That we suddenly became, we became enamored of this source of energy, which made fantastic uh, leap forward from having just burning wood and so on. And we just didn't see that in taking that step, into fossil fuels. We are completely changing the relationship with nature. So the assumption was this big nature surrounding us is really so big, we can only make marginal little changes here and there. And we were on a, I think the, the combination of capitalism and fossil fuels put us on a path which had a totally different effect. And it, that we were late to discover that, it seems to me to be almost wrong to blame <laughs> those immediately before us. It's very right to blame people who are denying the problem now. But if the long experience of the human race was being marginal to nature, making a few small changes here and there, to see the whole picture turned over to an utterly different one, where we are the greatest danger to it and ourselves, it took some time. It took some time. Now there's no reason, no excuse for delay. <laughs> Well, Charles Taylor, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for your contributions. We look forward to your next book. Thank you so much for taking your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Det var så min samtale med Charles Taylor. Jeg vil gerne gentage titlerne på hans væsentligste værker. Autenticitetens etik, som faktisk er kommet på dansk, udgivet på forlaget Filosofia i et bind, hvor der også er The Malaise of Modernity, som hedder Modernitetens Ubehag på dansk. Derudover er hans tre hovedværker efter min opfattelse 
den kæmpestore Hegelbog. Det er Sources of the Self, og det er Secular Age. Hvis man synes, det her det var en spændende samtale, så er her i hvert fald små 3500 sider, som man kan fornøje sig med. Det er en genopdagelse af principperne for den virkelighed, vi alle sammen befinder os i. Så det kan jeg kun anbefale. I næste uge, der går vi videre med det samme, men på en helt anden måde. Der skal jeg tale med den amerikanske politiske tænker Matthew Huber, som har en radikal kritik af den måde, vi tænker klimaaktivisme, klimabevægelse, ja, hele klimaprogrammen på. Faktisk er hans bog, som handler om klassekamp og klimapolitik, en radikal kritik af rigtig meget af det, vi står for her på Dagbladet Information. Så det vil jeg invitere jer indenfor til i næste uge. Den her samtale var som alle andre langsomme samtaler, produceret af vores vidunderlige hjælper, Anne Pilgaard Petersen, som har sat det hele sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved.